Thank you, Haley. Yes. She, uh, Haley's worked with us for several years, and um, I think she's good in front of people, but when she came up just now, right before she turned to speak to you, she looked at me and she said, you did this. <laughs> oh, so Haley, thank you for doing that. It's great to have you up here. We love you, and just uh, you are a blessing to our team. Uh, we're in a series called The Way Back to God, and it's the third week of it. We're in a fast right now, and just how many of you are fasting something right now? Hold your hand up. Look around. That's awesome. How's it going? <laughs> yeah. I did uh, food this last week, and um, mostly the grace of God was just on it really strong. But, boy, I had a couple of days where it was tough, and, you know, it's during those times when it's tough. So whatever you're fasting, there'll be a point where all of a sudden there is a sacrifice to it, Right. And just, I just thought I would throw this out today. It's during those times where it's so easy to give in and tell yourself, well, I guess this, was, this is long enough or this is a sign from the Lord that I'm supposed to stop at this point. Just because something gets difficult doesn't mean that's a sign from the Lord to, uh, to stop, right? And those are the times really where you want to dig deep and you want to give that time to the Lord. Remember, that really is uh, the secret, I guess is the best word, the, the, the way that when you're fasting, it's not just like, you know, you're trying to gut it out and you're trying to use discipline and you're trying to make yourself do something. It's turning to the Lord during those times so that if it's food, when you feel that hunger, turn to the Lord during that time and what you're telling yourself is, this is what I want to feel. Toward. I want to be hungry for the things of the Lord, right? So one other thing too, if you're doing food, and I know that not everybody is, um, some things are far more difficult than that. But if you're doing food, I read this last week that uh, basically a third of the world goes to bed every night hungry. Think about that. A third of the world goes to bed hungry every night. And the thing that I was reading, I think it was World Vision, said that you know when you're fasting and you are going to sleep and you feel that, remind yourself that a third of the world is going through this. And use it as an opportunity to pray for people right, in other parts of the world that need our prayers, that don't have it like we have it here. Yeah. I'm going to say that one more time, because that's a good cue to bless your nation, yeah. who do not have it like we have it here in America. We are blessed beyond measure in this country, and I know that uh, that is um, being torn at and ripped at and questioned in many ways, but the truth is, if you ever travel you will know how blessed we are uh, in this place and what God has done here. It's remarkable, beyond remarkable, uh, how blessed our country is. Amen? Yeah. Just the way that it is. So, um, in our series, uh, I'll jump in today, and I'm going to talk about what it means um, to have our land healed. One of the promises that we're looking at in Chronicles is that God said he will heal our land. I want to talk about that today. What can you expect? What are we praying for? What do we mean by that? Is it even possible? But I thought real quick I'd just give you an update. I don't have any pictures today, um, but was at the building earlier this week, and I had mentioned last week and had shown a video that showed the start of the framing. Um, man, framers are fast. They have that building framed out, basically. It's over 90% done uh, at this point. I stood in my office, um, Rich, last week and couldn't believe. I stood in the sanctuary. I stood in the training center and just, you know, listen, I know that it's cliche. And I don't mean this in some uh, fairy tale Disney-like 
statement, but dreams that God gives you do come true. You can count on those things. You can believe in those things. And if you sit here this morning with a dream in your heart that the Lord has given you, maybe it's about your family, yourself, something in the future, something to be corrected from the past. If the Lord gave that to you, I promise you, he intends on fulfilling that dream in your life. You can trust the Lord. Put your faith in that and stand in that thing. And it's an awesome thing to say to the Lord, well done. (laughs) Way to go. It is cool. And folks, I cannot wait. Just a couple of months, we will be there and we will be meeting and just just the vision that's behind that, the joy that that day will bring to us. I just cannot wait. So, Okay, the way back to God. I'm going to read to you all of 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 7, at least the first 14 verses. What we've been doing is just a couple of verses, really just one, verse 14, which concentrates on, you know, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, uh, those four things, then God says that he will, uh, you know, uh, turn, hear from heaven, and heal our land. And so I just want to, we've been talking about the four that we are responsible to do. Uh, but I want to talk today about um, one of God's promises to heal the land. What that means, I want to show you some things from the Bible. It's not just one thing, it really is, it's kind of a, a multi-pointed idea um, of what I think it could mean and what I think we could expect or at least be praying for. So we'll kind of go from there. So this is Second Chronicles chapter 7. Um, it's the context of it, 1 through 14. Solomon has just built the temple. And, you, you know, for Israel, this is everything. This is God's promise. It's just what I told you. God had promised to do this. And, um, man, it took a lot to get it done, but they got it done. So this is the dedication of the temple. And it's been this, I, I, they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles during this time, which is a very celebratory feast. It's an eight-day feast. Um, you know that the calendar runs on seven-day weeks. Israel has an eight-day feast, and it's a representation of a day that is not normal, a day that has uh, no, no uh, ending to it, a day that's a celebratory day. So a lot of people think that, um, that, that when Jesus returns and that we meet the Lord in heaven, that the celebration, uh, the marriage supper of the Lamb, happens over the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's on that eighth day. It's a feast that no one goes home from. You stay to celebrate forever with the Lord. So you just, if you connect some of the things, I don't have time to to develop this whole idea, but they're celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles at the dedication of the temple. It's the eighth day. It's the big celebration day. It is a party. Party. And if you're like nervous, like, can we talk about party in church? The devil stole party from the church. We are the original party animals, folks. We really are. We know how to party. And they, it's just been perverted. And, and you know what? We need to take back what belongs to us because celebration belongs in the church. Celebration belongs in the church. All right. When Solomon finished praying a dedication prayer, fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offerings and sacrifices and the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. Let me read that one more time. And the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. Could you imagine that when we get done praying, before you can say amen, fire, boom! And it consumes everything in the front. Not people, but the sacrifice. And then God's presence is suddenly in the temple. Could you imagine that? 
what that must be. I don't think we really can. I think, you know, you could go like, wow, that must have been something. It was more than like, wow, that must have been something. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of the Lord filled. Can you imagine? God's presence is so thick and so awesome and so much. He, he, he's throwing his weight around, which is what the word glory means. It means weight. When God shows up, he can throw his weight around. It's not something like, hey, was the Lord there? Everybody knows God was there. And it's so powerful. It is so thick. It is so awesome. The priest can't even go in to do their job because God is occupying the place right then. You imagine. <laughs> so fire coming down, the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple. Is that? Yeah, there you go. They fell face down on the ground and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, He is good. It's not the right response when the presence of God. No, nobody's like, oh, this is horrible. This is scary. This is... He is good. His faithful love endures forever. Then the king, Solomon, and all the people offered sacrifices to the Lord. And now, now it just goes into um, the amount of this is staggering. This, and you've got to remember, we don't do this today, right? This is not part of our culture. We're not, we're not Israel 3,000 years ago. There, there's a whole uh, understanding of what's going on. And I know we read this, and we're so disconnected. Like, what, what about the poor animals? You're, you're missing the point of what the sacrifice talked about. But it's just the amount here that's staggering. King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. Can you imagine? This is church lasting for a long time. This is not like, hey, you got 15 minutes to get this done. This is... And so the king and all the people dedicated the temple of God. The priests took their assigned positions. And so did the Levites who were singing, His faithful love endures forever. They accompanied the singing with music from the instruments King David had made for praising the Lord. Across from the Levites, the priests blew trumpets while all Israel stood... Solomon then consecrated the central area of the courtyard in front of the Lord's temple. He offered burnt offerings and the fat of peace offerings there because the bronze altar he had built could not hold all the burnt offerings, grain offerings, and the sacrificial fat. For the next seven days, and we complain when pastor goes an hour and 20 minutes. <laughs> For the next seven days... Solomon and all Israel celebrated the festival of shelters or the feast of tabernacles. That's just, that's just amazing. A large congregation had gathered from as far away as Labo Hamath in the north and the brook of Egypt in the south. On the eighth day, remember the eighth day, the final day, the day that's unlike any other day, a day that really it's not supposed to have an end. It's, a, it's a, a representation of a day that will come. On the eighth day, they had a closing ceremony for they had celebrated the dedication of the altar for seven days and the festival of shelters, the Feast of Tabernacles, for seven days. Then at the end of the celebration, Solomon sent the people home. They were all joyful and glad. Can you imagine going home from church after eight days, joyful and glad? It must have been some celebration, man. They were joyful and glad because the Lord had been 
so good to David and to Solomon and to his people because this goes all the way back to David's time when God gave the vision for the temple. So Solomon finished the temple of the Lord as well as the royal palace. He completed everything he had planned to do in the construction of the temple and the palace. Then one night the Lord appeared to Solomon and said, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this temple as the place for making sacrifices. At times I might shut up the heavens so that no rain falls or command grasshoppers to devour the crops or send plagues among you. And then here's the verse. But then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins, and then this part, and I will restore or literally I will heal their land. It's a magnificent portion of scripture that I can't do justice to. Uh, trying to connect, um, you know, in just a few minutes, uh, this entire promise of God, his, his prescription for, for his people, that when we find times in our lives, in our nation, uh, around us, where things are drying up, where things are being challenged, where things are being eaten away, where things are stagnant, where things are not, you, you know, here's what's funny. This is the most magnificent celebration Israel has ever had. Everybody is overjoyed. And God talks during that time, here's what's going to happen when it's not like this. But here's how you can get back to this. God's always restorative, always trying to reconnect, always trying to put us back into relationship with him. He's always trying to bless us. Always, always, always. And so this is the prescription that when things aren't like this joyful day that you find right now, when you find yourself at times where it's just not good, if my people called by my name, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, repent, turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. So two problems with this scripture real quick. Let me, from email and from people just asking me questions, um, here's kind of a common denominator. So pastor, with context, you're talking about something that God did for the nation of Israel, specifically concerning the temple and a vision that he gave David and Solomon, and this is for the Jews. So you're talking about, like, this is written to us. Do you think you're, is it actually fair for you to take a scripture that was written to Israel and say this applies to America? I think that's a decent question, right? I don't know if that ever occurs to you. You might be thinking, like, so, Pastor, we, we just trust you if you say it does, it does. That, okay, that would be good enough, except I don't want to be in that position with you. That sets me up for a lot of failure. So can we find God acting this way for other nations that aren't Israel? I've got the perfect story today that shows you that this context can be applied to America. Uh, In the book of Jonah, there was a city called Nineveh. Nineveh at the time was, at one time, it was the largest city on the face of the earth, a very powerful city, but it was not a Jewish city. It was not a people who had a covenant with God. These were people who were just living, doing business. They were known for their commerce. They were, they were like the America, the, 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 the engine of finance and commerce in the world was Nineveh at this time. Nineveh is not where the temple is. Nineveh is not a people that have a covenant with God. So you just get the picture, right? So what does Nineveh then have to do? Why would God care about Nineveh? Because people were in Nineveh. And wherever you find people, you will find God's care for people. So then the Lord spoke to Jonah again. Remember the story? Go to the great city Nineveh, he said, and warn them of their doom, as I told you before. So Jonah obeyed, and he went to Nineveh. 
Now, Nineveh was a very large city with many villages around it, so large that it would take three days to walk all the way through it and around it. But the very first day when Jonah entered the city and began to preach, the people did what? Guys, I, you got to talk when I ask a question. Uh, so, <laughs> when Jonah entered the city and began to preach, the people what? Now, can you imagine... This city that is not, this is not a Jewish, they have no covenant. I'm sure there are Jews living in this place, but they have no covenant. This is not Israel. This is not a people who understand uh, their response and that they're the chosen people. So this, this Jewish prophet shows up, and by the way, we're reading the second half of the story. If you remember the story, the first time God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, he went the exact opposite way and has an encounter with a fish that changed a lot of things, right? So now we're reading the story after he repents, after God gives him a second chance, go to Nineveh, and Jonah's like, uh, yes, sir, I'll go right now. So we're reading the story now, right? He goes into Nineveh, and he begins to tell people to repent, and their response is to repent. So the very first day when Jonah entered the city and began to preach, the people repented. Jonah shouted to the crowds that gathered around him, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And the most remarkable thing happened. They believed him. Can you imagine somebody coming today and shouting to us, 40 days from now, we would lock that person up. We would put them away. We would mock them. We would call them of some kind of a weird cult. Yes or no? We wouldn't give the time of day to a person like this. So they believed him and declared a what? A fast. Amazing. And the king, from the king on down, everyone put on sackcloth, the rough, coarse garments worn at times of mourning. By the way, to just explain this, sackcloth, you can still find it today. Like if you ever find a big 100-pound bag of potatoes, you ever seen them, they come that way? That's sackcloth. Imagine making clothes out of something. like it's, it's to drive yourself crazy. It's so that you're not comfortable. So that when you walk, it itches. When you sit down, it rubs. When you're trying to do whatever you do, it's just like, why am I doing this? Because you're trying to afflict yourself, not be comfortable, and remind yourself that there's another side of life than just trying to always be comfortable. That's what they're doing in this. It's intentionally trying to make yourself aware that there's more to life than just trying to chase pleasure. So when the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne. He laid aside his royal robes. Could you imagine any one of our presidents doing this? Put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. And the king and his nobles sent this message throughout the city. Let no one, not even animals eat anything at all, nor even drink any water. Everyone must wear sackcloth and cry mightily to God and let everyone turn from his evil ways, from his violence, and from robbing. Who can tell, perhaps even yet, God will decide to let us live and will hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. And when God saw that they had put a stop to their evil ways, he abandoned his plan to destroy them and didn't, and didn't carry it uh, through to the end. It's remarkable to me that God will abandon his plans when we abandon ours. And I think that what I want to point out to you with this just real quickly, 
for those of you who might be thinking, okay, pastor, I like that verse, and I think that verse is really important. It's got a lot of beauty to it, and there's a lot of symmetry to it, but it's written to someone else at another time. It's written to the Jews. It's written about the temple, and it's written about Israel. And how can you, for a minute, go, God is saying in America in 2022 that if my people called by my name will humble themselves Pray, seek my face, and repent, turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and I will heal their lives. How can you connect those two things together? Is it even fair to teach that those two things are coming together? And I would say to you, in truth, the context of 2 Chronicles is not written to America. It was written to Israel. But the scriptures support themselves by finding other places where God acted mercifully to people who turn from their wicked ways. He spares their land. He spares their animals. He spares their economy. He, God does things on behalf of people who pursue him for the people who don't pursue him. So is it then fair to say that even if he didn't say it directly to America, we can find places that even if they're not Christian places, that if they respond to God, God will turn towards that nation and heal that land. Yes or no? Do you see it? Okay, so then, so then, if you're, if you are, like, if you like to argue and you want to just extrapolate this to the farthest end, then the, the next question you would have to ask, and the next problem with this is, is that Israel and Nineveh had a national repentance. So, so, I mean, pastor, do you think it's even possible for a national repentance to happen in America? With God, anything is possible. But that's not what I want to argue. I want to show you another side of God's mercy that we can apply in this situation. And this goes back to a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. Ever heard of that one? This is Genesis 18, 32. I won't read the whole story. Finally, Abraham said, Lord, please don't be angry with me if I speak one more time. Suppose only ten people are found in Sodom and Gomorrah that love you, that are willing to repent. And the Lord replied, then I will not destroy it for the sake of the ten. The problem with Sodom and Gomorrah is they couldn't find even ten people who wanted to pursue God. Can we find ten people in America? I think there are millions of people in America who love God. I think there are millions of people in this land who are pursuing the face of God. I think in my presence today are thousands of people who will hear this message who are hungry for the Spirit of God, who are hungry to pursue His face, who are hungry to afflict themselves to say, God, I am not just chasing my comfort. I'm not just chasing pleasure, but I want to replace that with pursuing you. I want your heart. I want your face. I want to be in your presence. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied, be filled. They will find the answer they're looking for when they're looking for the right answer. And I say to you this morning, it doesn't take a national repentance for America to be saved. All it takes is for the believers who are here to turn towards God as never before and cry out on behalf of people who don't even know God. God in his mercy saves Israel and saves Nineveh and will save America. That is our God. That is our God. You know, I don't know why I like to preach to the left side. I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't know what it says about you over here on this side. Because I like you and I'm looking out. I, was, I think there's people over here who love God more than over there. So maybe, it's be, maybe that's what it is. <laughs> it 
So I just, look, the only reason I even add that into the message today is I just, like, I don't want you to ever think when I'm teaching something that I don't realize the context it's written to or, you know, like, hey, you know, that's a neat message, but is it really possible? Is it really practical? According to everything I just told you, this scripture in Second Chronicles is totally possible for America today. And in fact, it's our only hope in America today. It is our only hope in America today. So I want to talk to you then about what it means um, for God to hear from heaven, to forgive our sins. But in particular, I want to talk what it means uh, for him to heal our land. So I'm going to give you three examples of what it looks like when God's covenant with people regarding the land happens, how he heals the land, what the land can do. I'm, I'm going to show you a picture of what the land looks like when it's, when it's not, when it needs to be healed, and a picture of what the land looks like when it is working like it's supposed to be, when it's healed. Uh, the first one is really weird. See if you can connect these two. I want to talk about Cain and Abel real quickly. Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. And you know the story is most familiar in that Cain killed his brother Abel. So we're going to read their story real quick. But I want you to see the judgment that was pronounced on Cain because it has to do with the land and it has to do with the land that needs to be healed. So this is, uh, this is Genesis uh, chapter 4, uh, 1 through 12. Now Adam had sexual relations. Like if you're like, Pastor, this is church. This is the Bible. Uh, Adam had sexual relations with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant, and she gave birth to Cain. And she said, uh, with the Lord's help, I have produced a man. Later she gave birth to his brother and named him Abel. And when they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, and Cain was a farmer. He cultivated the ground. Now, there's nuance to this story, and a lot of people don't understand this story. And in fact, John Steinbeck, the great American author, wrote a book called East of Eden, and he talked about Cain and Abel, and scriptural ignorance, biblical ignorance, was full uh, of John Steinbeck's writing. He just didn't simply, the great writer, but he didn't understand. And so when he tells the story of Cain and Abel, he just says that uh, God just liked Abel, and he just disliked Cain, and that is not it's just not true. So what he says is that some people go through life, God likes them, and some people go through life, and God doesn't like them. And you don't get to choose, and if you're on the bad side, too bad for you, and if you're on the good side, good for you. And I would just say to you, if you ever mouth the words, God just doesn't like me, you need to slap your mouth. Don't ever say something so silly. Don't ever say something. God loves you, cares for you, and you have his favor on your life. When it was time for the harvest, remember, Cain is a farmer, and Abel is a shepherd. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented, it's the nuance of the story, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Yes, he gave a sacrifice. Yes, he gave an offering. Yes, he gave a tithe to the Lord. But it's in the word some. And then we see, we see the nuance here with, with what Abel did. Abel also brought a gift, an offering, a tithe. Uh, he gave the, what's the word there? What's the difference between some and best? So I'm coming to your side now. What's the difference between some and best? I, life and death. Everything. When you just like, hey, you know, okay, God wants something. Let me see, what do I got? Um, I got a tic-tac, here you go. To give some without thought, without care... Uh, yeah, of course, you can check the box. I gave some. I gave something. But you didn't give your heart. Okay. 
your heart is revealed in the gift you give to God. Your passion is revealed in the gift you give to God. It is not the amount. Although, in some cases, it could be the amount. But it's what's going on inside of your heart. Are you giving the best you have? Now, if you're hearing, Pastor John is saying, we need to give to Jubilee. Your heart is messed up. I will not be shut up, pushed back, or embarrassed to say, if you are a Christ follower, he deserves your very best. He deserves the best of your time. He deserves the best of your energy. He deserves the very best that you can present to him and give to him. And when you stand before him, and everything that I'm saying suddenly is peeled back, and it's you and him, if you hear what I'm saying right now, you will thank me that you understood this because you will look at the Lord knowing you gave your best or you gave something. Don't reject this right now. There's no manipulation in it. I'm not asking you for anything in particular. The Holy Spirit says something to you. Do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. But give your best because he is a God worth giving your best to. If he is second, third, fifth, tenth, then I guess it doesn't matter. But Eric, if you claim he's the first, the proof is in how you sacrifice to the first. King David, man, just a story. When King David went to sacrifice, uh, a man named Aruna had a threshing floor where they would thresh wheat. And the king showed up and needed to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And Aruna said, King David, let me give you this floor. It belongs, let me give it to you. And David said this, I will not sacrifice to the Lord with something that cost me nothing. I will pay for it and I will pay lavishly in order to give my God who is worth the best the best. And the response of this story is understanding the difference between a person who gave some and a person who gave the best. God's response to that person is found in their heart. For the one who just like, I'll give you something, God's like, I'll give you something then too. But for the one who gives the best, I think that God says, I will give you my best. Is it okay for me to say that? It's very quiet. So when it was time for harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel's and his gift, but he did not accept, approve, bless Cain and his gift. And then the funniest thing happens. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Can you imagine him saying, why would God do this? Duh. I don't know why my message is turning towards this suddenly. How foolish would it be for Cain to be mad at God for something he did? And he's mad at his brother, because his brother loved God in a way that he was unwilling to do. Why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain. Remember, if God asks you a question, it's not because he lacks the knowledge. He's trying to get you to realize something. Why do you look so dejected? You will be, he's even teaching him. You will be accepted. You will be blessed if you do what is right. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. That's plain spoke. 
Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Man, that is... Uh. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. Here's the question. Is this premeditated murder? Had he planned when they were on the walk to kill him? Had he thought this through? Had he decided? Or were they just going for a walk and while he was out he got mad and he did it? It's the difference between first and second degree murder. Does it matter? No, but my mind just... <laughs> and while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And afterward the Lord asked Cain, remember when God asked you a question, he already knows the answer. Where's your brother? Where is Abel? Here are famous words. I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian or am I my brother's keeper? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from where? From the ground. Now you are cursed and banished from where? Which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you. No matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. The literal understanding of the judgment upon Cain is that the earth, God caused the earth to give its strength back to us when we sow into the earth. The book of Genesis says that one thing that will remain as long as the earth is here, right, is that seed time and harvest, day and night, cold and heat. Those things will remain on the earth as long as the earth is here. Seed time and harvest. God put a universal law into effect that when you sow into the earth, the earth will give you its strength when the crops come back, right? God put a curse on Cain and said, no matter how hard you try, the earth will not give you its strength. Sometimes the ground, the place, the land is under a curse so that no matter how hard the people are trying, it doesn't produce like it used to produce. And that's when we look back on times of the past and we say, boy, those were the good old days. Boy, that's when revival was easy. Boy, that's when people really turned to God. Do you ever just think that maybe the difference today is that the violence upon America? You with me? The blood that cries out from the ground. What did you expect when you came? That millions upon millions of innocent lives that that blood doesn't ever cry out to God? Yeah, but, but you, you don't want What have you done? What have you done? So I'm uncomfortable too right now. But I'm going to go there. What have we done? What's going on in our land today? What's happening so fast in such a short generational time that the place that was such a blessing to the entire earth 
now is looked upon with revision and scorn in so many places, including within our nation. That our own people are so divided against themselves. What is going on? What have you done? Do you not realize that it all cries out to God? Could it God be saying to us, folks, until you recognize and realize, until you turn and repent, no matter how hard you work, it is not going to produce for you anymore. Second Timothy 3 says that in the last days, times will come where people will not want to hear prophetic, difficult, convicting messages so that they will turn and find teachers that they will heap to themselves who will preach things that only tickle their ears, that ignore reality in order to pursue pleasure. That's what it says. Pastor's a fool to stir up controversy with people that he loves unless the Lord is trying to say, what is going on? What's going on? All right, let me change it and get us out of this tough place real quick. Pastor Terry sent me a video. Um, Here's the name of it. I'm not going to show it to you. I don't have time. I'm going to give you the name. If you want to see this video, I'm going to tell you where you can go to watch it. The name of the video is called Transformations, a Documentary. Transformations, a Documentary. It was done a few years ago, about four cities in the earth. Uh, One is in South America. One is uh, in America. One is in Africa. The other one... I think it's Europe. I can't remember the fourth one. Forgive me. Transformations, a documentary. Here's the heading. I watched it. Here's the heading or the little spiel uh, about the video. Imagine a community where 92% of the population is born again, where city jails have been closed for a lack of crime. Eric, could you imagine? That's like, no way. Where agricultural productivity has reached biblical proportions. Imagine a city where 60,000 Christians jam the municipal soccer stadium for all-night prayer vigils every 90 days. Where a multi-billion dollar drug cartel has been brought to his knees. Imagine a town where local bars have been transformed into churches. Where ancestral shrines have been destroyed and where entire family clans have come to faith in Christ. Don't imagine it, believe. So Terry sends this to me, and I watched it. Here's where you can find it. On YouTube, you can find this video. If you go to, listen to this. If you go to Prime Video, they've removed it. They've censored it and removed it. But if you go to YouTube, now watch by the time we get home, it's gone, right? (laughs) If you go to Prime Video. So Prime Video... And it's, it's on there right now. You can watch it. Now, I just say to you real quickly, this is not Hollywood money that produced this. It's a documentary that a few believers went to these places and documented what God is doing 
in these places. And it's absolutely remarkable. And my point simply is this, that if, if revival were to come to a place and God said, if my people that are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will turn my face, forgive their sins, and I will heal their land. What does it mean to have your land healed? I think what this documentary explores is what a place looks like when it's given over to God instead of given over to the enemy. And literally, the things that I just told you, which is only the tip of the iceberg, but to have to close the jails because there's no crime going on. Could you imagine? Does it even sound... It sounds so outlandish that you say to yourself, it can't be true. And yet... Watch it today, four places. And by the way, it doesn't say that everything suddenly becomes like a panacea. And this, this is not heaven. Thank God. So no matter how good it gets here, it's still not heaven, right? This is not heaven. That's what makes heaven so wonderful. This is not heaven. But this can be better. And when the land is not under a curse and being blessed, it can produce something that your hard work can never make happen. One day of God's blessing is worth a lifetime of your labor. You could work a lifetime as hard as you can work, and God in one moment can bless you in a way that your labor can't come close to what God can do in one moment of time. One moment of time. We should be pursuing the presence of God. We should be so hungry for the presence of God not to do better, not to, not to chase a vacation or to chase a house or to chase an amount of money or to chase something that we think is going to satisfy. We should be chasing the presence of God. We should be the God chasers. We should be the ones who are so ravenously hungry for the presence of God because if you get God's presence, all the other stuff is just the byproduct of God's presence. In his presence is fullness of joy. In his presence is life evermore. What is it about the presence of God that when we say these things, the church is so disconnected? Well, I, I, I do think there could be something to it. You know what it is? We live in a day, ah, you know what we live in? We live in a day of drought. We know not of the things we read about what it was like when it used to rain. Now we accommodate drought. Don't use too much of this and don't do too much of that because we got to make it last. But what if it was so super and abundant that we had to ask God to stop? And there are places in Scripture where His presence was, they had to ask, please shut the windows of heaven. We cannot receive any more blessing. I would like one day in my life. Anybody with me on that? One day. One moment of my life to say, God, please, please stop blessing. Please, God, I can't take any more of this. God, I have no place to put it. Oh, I can give you a neat example. Those fires that ravished up in Superior. The give, have you seen the giving that's happened up in Superior? Forty-some-odd million dollars in the last couple of weeks have been given. I watched the fire chief, my own eyes, I saw him say this. He went on the news and he said, please, please do not donate any more stuff. We cannot take any more clothes. We cannot take any more food. We cannot take any more heaters. He said, we have filled up all of our warehouses. We have it stacked up in the snow outside. Any more stuff you bring is going to be ruined because we have no place for it. Could you imagine a time in God where he, you have to tell, please stop. I don't have barns big enough. I have no place to put, it's going to spoil. And we, 
we think that that is ludicrous. It doesn't even connect. We should be so hungry for the presence of God. Not because it gives us stuff. But the presence of God is everything. Now let me give you the second one. Oh. I'm three minutes in deficit already. Um, the ark of God and a man named Obed-Edom. You probably don't even know him. But he had the remarkable experience of having the presence of God in his house for three months. And in a three-month time span, he became so famous in Israel because of the blessing of God on it. Could you imagine three months is enough to change everything forever? 2 Samuel chapter 6. King David decided not to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom of Gath. The ark of the Lord remained in Obed-Edom's house for how long? And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his entire household. Now let me read it to you because uh, 2 Samuel also tells the story from a different point of view. Then King David was told, The Lord has blessed Obed-Edom's household and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went there and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with a great celebration. So when it says that God's presence, so you remember, the ark represents God's presence. Wherever the ark go, God had decided to allow, this is going to represent my presence. They're taking the ark into the city of David. David's bringing it in there. But God prescribed how the ark was supposed to be carried. Only the priests would take poles and put it between the rings on the ark and carry it upon their shoulders. And David didn't read the Bible. He put it on a cart and had some oxen drag the ark towards the city of Jerusalem. And one of the ox stumbled and the ark began to shake. So a man named Uzzah reached his hand out to steady the ark. Doesn't that seem like he's doing God a favor? But you don't treat things that are supernatural as though they're natural. We become casual with the things of God at our own hurt. Uzzah put his hand out to steady the ark and he dropped dead on the spot. And David was so freaked out that he looked around and said, put it in that house right there. Now if you're Obed-Edom, and you're standing out front watching a parade go by. And the guy drops dead and the king goes, we're going to put this in your house. My neighbor has a bigger house. You could probably put it over there. But actually Obed-Edom is a man of God. Because it's written about Obed-Edom later in the book of Psalms. I'd rather be the doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than the wealthiest man, I'm paraphrasing, in the world doing everything else. Obed-Edom realized that the presence of God was everything. So David, just to have a place to put the ark, put it in Obed-Edom's house for 90 days. And during that 90 days, the Bible says, Obed-Edom and everything that he had was so blessed by God that it became so famous or infamous in Israel that David, it came back to, and David said, we got to get it here in Jerusalem because we need that blessing here. But what in Obed-Edom's life got blessed? I bet his health was blessed. 
I bet his children were blessed. I bet his marriage was blessed. I bet his crops were blessed. I bet his animals were blessed. I bet his new chariot that sat out in the driveway, I bet it was blessed. (laughs) I bet everything, I bet he became so wealthy. I bet that everything in his life became so smooth and so good. The Midas touch, that everything he touched was just blessed not because of him, but because of... Now, how about this? At first, they tell him, we're going to put the ark in your house. And he's like, uh, I, I don't know. How about when they came to take the ark from his house? Yeah. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. But I bet he was so incredibly blessed that it lasted the rest of his life. So my point with all of this is, the ark in and of itself is not it. It's the presence of God. In Genesis 39, a man named Joseph had the experience of the presence of God. Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders. Remember, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was purchased. He's a slave. He was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. Potter was captain of the guard for Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. The Lord was with who? His presence, God's presence is with Joseph. So he succeeded. These things just go hand in hand. He succeeded in everything he did. And he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Remember, he's a slave, but he's being blessed. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. Every plan, uh, every purpose, everything that he did is blessed because of God's presence. And this pleased Potiphar. So he soon made Joseph his personal attendant. He put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. From the day Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property, the Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. And all his household uh, affairs ran smoothly and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything that he owned. With Joseph there, he didn't worry about a thing except what kind of food to eat. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. Everything that he had going on was blessed because of God. God blessed even an Egyptian who worshipped false, fake, nasty little G-gods because of God's presence that was with Joseph. God's presence, guys. All it would take is a few believers to carry this level of presence in a country that is rejecting God. And because of God's presence on believers' lives, it would bless the country. It would bless your neighbors. It would even, well, I won't. I just don't have time. When Solomon finished praying, we're going back to Chronicles. When when Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. The best part of this story is God's presence filling their church. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of the Lord. Could you imagine building a building, spending so much of your life trying to build a building and then when you go to do the dedication you can't do the dedication because God is inside and he won't let you in let's go back to Genesis real quick skip to that for me I'm just out of time I'm having to go fast Um, this is back to the story of Cain remember God said to Cain No matter how hard you work, the ground will not produce for you. And you're going to be a wanderer. 
Cain replied to the Lord, my punishment is far too great for me to bear. You have banished me. Look what he's been banished from. You have banished me from the land, from it being able to produce. But he also recognizes this. And you have banished me from what? Your presence. You have made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. The Lord replied, no, for I will give a sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain left the Lord's what? And he settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Many scholars believe that what hell really is, is the place that for eternity you will live outside of the presence of God. Now you sit here and I say that and you have no idea what that means because you have never lived one moment of your life without the overarching presence of God being in this world. Even for people who reject him, who don't believe in him, who curse him, who do everything they can to, to dispel the myth of God. Everything they can, God's presence still protects them and is around them so that you can curse him, but he is so above that and loves so much that he allows his presence even to remain with yeah. people. who re This earth has never known one day without the presence of God. And if you study this out, and I don't have time to go there right now, but part of the tribulation period, when, when, when the Holy Spirit is removed from the, the presence of the Lord will be removed from the earth. And for three and a half years, it will be so terrible on this earth because God's presence is not here upon this earth. Listen to me. And I can settle for the idea that hell is a place without the presence of God. And that'll be the worst part about it. Except Jesus adds the fire part to it. So I can't not act like it wasn't said. But I do agree that the worst part about any life would be living it away from the presence of God. You have no idea. Cain's punishment, living in east of Eden, was to live outside of the presence of God. Can you imagine even Cain realized, this is too much for me to bear. You're going to take away your presence from me? I'm trying to say in this message, if God said, I will heal your land, he's talking about pouring his presence out upon this land. He's talking about magnifying who he is in our lives Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God, for they will be filled. Let me give you the last one. About three years ago, I came back from Israel, Chris and I, uh, on a day in Jerusalem in the old city. Our, our room, we had this beautiful room that overlooked the old city of Jerusalem. And, and you open the door and you, you're facing Jaffa Gate, for those who know. And if you don't know, go to Israel with me. Go to Israel with me. So we're overlooking the old city of Jerusalem in the Jaffa Gate. And the team that day had gone down to the Dead Sea. And we had been many, many times. And a medicine that I, is right after the heart attack, a medicine that I take, I can't be in extreme heat. It really messes with my heart with the medicine. So we stayed back that day. And we were just, we, we opened the door and we were just worshiping the Lord in Jerusalem where Jesus walked. I could see the gate that he walked through. you imagine? And I was just thanking the Lord that day for being alive. It was just after the heart attack. I was just thanking the Lord. I'm alive and I'm here and this is awesome. 
And God's presence is so thick. And the Lord brought a scripture to us from Genesis 47. And I came back and I pronounced on our church, God gave me the scripture and it's going to mean four things for our church. But one of them is we're going to be moving shortly. I don't know. Hadn't planned that. But we're going to be moving out of this building and we're going to build a teaching and training center that goes with our church. I said, not knowing what I was saying. Anybody here then that remembers me saying that? Maybe half of you. It was just prophetic. I just want to read this scripture to you one more time. Are you still with me? Man, I feel like sometimes I just... uh. Meanwhile, the people of Israel settled in the region of Goshen in Egypt. There they acquired property. They were fruitful and their population grew rapidly. Okay, here's all I want to say about this. The context of this verse is that Egypt is going through the worst drought in, in records that have been kept. And in fact, it turns into a worldwide drought where people in all the world were coming to Egypt to buy grain because Joseph, Pharaoh had a dream about this drought, was looking for someone to interpret the dream. None of Pharaoh's priests could interpret the dream, but Joseph, who's in prison at this time, because of something that happened with Potiphar's wife that was not true. He's in prison and he has the gift to interpret dreams. Pharaoh has the dream. They remember that Joseph can interpret dreams. They bring him out. Joseph tells Pharaoh it represents a famine that's coming to the world like never before. Pharaoh says, what should we do? Joseph says, right now, begin to save up for the next seven years because the following seven are going to be the worst the world has ever seen. And because God had given them the strategy to overcome this worldwide crisis. Listen to me. All of the world came to Egypt to stay alive. And Joseph, Egypt just blew up because Joseph was there. And Pharaoh rewarded Joseph by letting his family come and live in Egypt. And he gave them a piece of property that in the middle of a worldwide crisis, God's people flourished like never before and that's this verse that while they're in this worldwide crisis the people of God settled in the region of Goshen in Egypt there they acquired property they were fruitful and their population grew rapidly and the Lord gave that scripture to me about our church not knowing that we were going to enter into one of the worst crises worldwide no one had any idea this thing was coming especially I can say I had no idea this thing was coming and maybe you are a person who is into you know uh, well waste time waster I I, just, just I'm telling you right now God's presence is with us in the middle of a war we're building a building in a worldwide crisis we're advancing in the middle of a worldwide crisis. And what I'm trying to say today is we are just barely scratching the surface of what God wants to do. The building is not the reward. The presence of God is his reward. And you are going to be rewarded with the presence of God that I believe, I'm saying this prophetically, the presence of God is coming to this earth again to prepare the way for Jesus. And there is going to be an in-sweeping into the kingdom that the world has never seen before. And for those who are prepared for it, wow. Wow. Hear me right now. And if you sit there living east of Eden in the land of Nod, come home. 
come home. Quit living outside of the presence of God. Quit living your life somewhere out by yourself, trying your hardest, doing your best, but it is not producing. Tell the truth. Is it producing or is it not producing? Do you find yourself working ever harder, trying ever harder, putting more energy and finding less return? Tell me. The Lord is trying to say something today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for His righteousness. Rich, you will be satisfied. You will be. And what that presence means to your life, to your family, to your country, to your church. We just lived in a drought so long we don't know. But for those who have eyes to see, Sandra, and ears to hear, Larry, whose spirits pick up what I'm saying right now, the invitation is there. Come to me, all of you who are hungry, all of you who are thirsty, all of you who are weary, and I will satisfy you. Normally at this part I say, bow your heads and close your eyes, but don't do it today. Keep your eyes open and look at me. If you are not in a relationship with Jesus, you need to be. I'm not selling religion. I'm not pandering to some kind of a, hey, do this and this will take care of all your problems. I'm telling you the truth. God is life. You were created to experience that life. He loves you. He sent me here today to tell you how much he loves you. Quit living east of Eden. Quit living outside of the presence of God. Quit doing your own thing. Quit trying harder. Come home. Come home. Give your heart to Jesus. Give your life to Christ. It's not a church thing. It's not a do-good thing. It's not a change and reform. It's love Jesus. Love Jesus. How long will you waver between two opinions and live your life? Well, I'm just not... Jump in, man. Sell out. and Give everything to God. Quit giving an offering and give the best you have. Give yourself. Fully give yourself. I don't know where to end this message. Haley, you poor thing, come up here. I like to make my job easy, don't you? <laughs> I want you to pray to end it, will okay, you? Okay, I will. And then you can dismiss right. after that. Awesome. Okay. All right, will you guys pray with me? Yeah, you can pray. You can clap for him, and then we'll pray. <laughs> All right. Father God, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the way that you are posturing our hearts towards you and towards this season, Lord. We, we accept it. We claim the goodness that you are doing in all the ways that you have gone before, Lord. We pray that you would make our hearts tender to hear your voice every single day. Father God, we pray for those that are having their hearts stirred in ways that they had previously not felt before, Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your constant invitation to come home, no matter where we are, no matter what we are carrying or what we feel we deserve, Lord. You are so good, and you have paid it all. Father God, we thank you, and we love you. Amen.